Failure happens. It's not a glitch. In fact, it's an inevitable part of life. But most of us fail to learn from failure. We let fear and shame get in the way, so says Harvard Business School professor Amy Edmondson. She shares groundbreaking research about the different types of failure and how coming up short reminds us that we are human and fallible. Reframing our missteps can lead to important discoveries and improvements rather than treating it as not something to beat ourselves up about. Amy's new book is called Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. And Professor Amy Edmondson joins me now. Hi. Hi. We better begin Glad with, to be here. Yeah, nice to talk to you. We better begin with your experience as a PhD student and your soul-crushing failure. What happened? <laughs> well, I had a hypothesis. It was a study of medical error, the relationship between good teamwork and error rates. And my hypothesis, which won't surprise our listeners, was that better teams would have lower error rates. Unfortunately, the data suggested the opposite was the case. In other words, I looked closely at the analyses I'd just done. There was a significant correlation between teamwork and error rates, but it was in the wrong direction. So that was, as you said, crushing at first. Yeah. Until you saw the opportunity in that data, right? Yeah. And of course, it wasn't minutes later. It was hours later. Because I think I spent too much time just feeling despondent and confused and worried about if I would have to drop out of graduate school and all sorts of silly thoughts like that, but maybe human. And I suddenly thought, maybe, maybe the better teams don't make more mistakes. Maybe they're more willing to talk about them. After all, error in a complex setting like healthcare delivery happens. Things go wrong. But most of the time, thankfully, they're caught and corrected before any harm is is caused. And it actually stands to reason, more you think about it, that really good teams would be open and upfront and quick and willing to talk about these things so that patients get the best care. Now, the idea of learning from failure, I think it's fair to say it's a quite a trendy idea. Um, the difference maybe with your work is that you've looked pretty hard at the the research and you've put some systems around how to think about it. But talk to me about failing fast. That's a bit of a catchphrase in the tech community. Is that a useful way to think about failure? It is a useful way to think about it in some contexts, <laughs> but not others. Right. So it's, you know, it's funny because people often say, well, what's the balance between, you know, fail fast and, you know, get get it right and like no 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 it's not about balance it's about context it's about what are the contexts or what are the situations in which fail fast makes sense and in brief they are the situations that are um, new where you don't have an answer yet so you've got to try things and see what works so new territory but also where you can experiment without causing undue harm like your your failures will not be more expensive than you can afford or will not create human safety failures. Yeah, because if someone's listening and they work with heavy machinery, they might think, hey, look, this is all very well exactly. in academia or maybe in advertising or um, 
you know, in those sorts Precisely. of jobs. But if I'm, um, you know, running a dangerous piece of equipment or maybe some, maybe a pilot's listening who works for an airline, it's quite different, right? That's exactly right. So people working with heavy machinery or pilots, and I've got examples of both in the book, are right to be terribly cautious, right? To wear their safety glasses if they're working with heavy machinery, to follow the protocols and the instructions very carefully because you do not want an injury that that could have been prevented. Similarly with aviation, it is all about caution and vigilance and being well aware of the, the small signals that something might not be right so that you can catch and correct and adjust. Is it useful at this point to talk about the difference between failure and a mistake? Yes, I think so. Because people tend to use those two words interchangeably. Yeah. And I think that's part of the problem. So a, a mistake happens when we have knowledge, we have a procedure, we have a recipe for how to get a result that we want, but we fail to use it um, for whatever reason, right? Maybe you weren't paying attention. Um, maybe mm. you forgot to uh, you know, check in with the person who actually knows how to do something. So a mistake, the idea of a mistake assumes we have knowledge already about the right way to go. And we deviated from it. A failure is a larger term. A failure covers any undesired results, some of which are caused by mistakes, but others of which are simply the result of an unsuccessful experiment in new territory. Okay, and there are different types of failure too. Um, Good failure and bad failure, hence the title of your book, The Mm -hmm. Right Kind of Wrong. Um, so, So what is the distinction there? You know, any good failure, which I call an intelligent failure, brings new knowledge, new knowledge you couldn't have gotten any other way. So it's a discovery. And to be even more precise, an intelligent failure or a good failure happens in new territory, in pursuit of a goal, with a hypothesis, like you've done your homework, and it's as small as possible. You haven't bet more than you can afford. You haven't put life or or safety at risk in in some way and you you wish you were right you would hope to be right but you weren't that's that's something that we have to have more of in our life rather than less of i think if you think about it any you know when we're when we're young and we're dating to find a life partner there's lots of intelligent failures along the way right it's new territory we hope to meet someone that we really want to spend time with and we were pretty sure this one might be plausible. And it's just a date after all. Or maybe it's just a relationship for a while after all. It's 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 not um it's the necessary forays into new territory that we all must do to learn what we need to learn to then move forward. We talked about your PhD, but presumably there are other examples from oh. science from, from medicine where some of our greatest discoveries have come from a willingness to fail. Absolutely. There's been no progress in medicine or science without willingness to fail. I can guarantee you that any Nobel Prize winning scientist had many, many, you know, hundreds of failures along the way. There's also a distinction, important distinction between basic failure and complex failure. How do you define each of those? Yes. So both basic failures and complex failures are in theory preventable. You know, when we're at our very best we're able to prevent them, uh, but they're not exactly the same 
concept, right? So a basic failure is a failure caused by a single factor, a single human error. You put the milk in the cupboard and it spoils, right? It's small failure, but mm -hmm. it's, it's basic uh, because it's just one mistake led to the failure. Hey, you text and drive and, and get into a collision. That's a basic failure. Single error caused that failure. Complex failure is multi-causal. It's a failure that has a handful of contributing factors, any one of which on its own would not have led to failure. But the way they all came together in just the wrong way created this undesirable result. Yeah, you give the example of the supply chain breakdown during the global pandemic. That was a complex failure, and we have to hope that a few people have learnt a few things along the way there. Absolutely. And, and you know, of course, some of that was unpreventable because it was also novel territory. Yeah. The supply chains aren't novel territory, but a global pandemic was a novel was novel territory. But still, it's a complex failure. And one could imagine that some aspects of it could have been prevented or at least mitigated. But it's complex because you can imagine that in many cases, you know, people weren't able to show up for work so that that led to less output in other in other cases, you know, ships were unable to get in and out of ports because of, of just small deviations in schedules that ultimately led to a mess, technical term. Yeah. I'm talking to Harvard Business School professor Amy Edmondson. Her book is called Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. And it's not all about business, or at least not all the examples come from business. We move to the movie set of the film Rust. Alec Baldwin mm. is the face of this disaster, rightly or wrongly. And this was the uh, movie set where a real gun went off and killed a cinematographer, yeah. tragically. Um, that might sound on the surface of things like a basic failure, someone put the wrong bullets in. But it was, in fact, quite complex. Yes, the, the, the Rust tragedy was indeed a complex failure. There were there were a handful of factors that were contributing to extra stress and um, reducing some of the precaution that you would expect where, wherever there's a firearm involved. Um, they um, they hadn't been following their safety procedures exactly right, but in a sense the deviation wasn't big enough to cause that kind of problem. Mm -hmm. But there we're, we're going to add to the the overly casual attitude, the fact that they had very long commutes from where the set was and where the hotel was. People had, um, you know, were, were, were quite tired. Uh, the, the gun safety person announced that the gun was cold, meaning there was no, no, um, no, no actual ammunition in it. Um, there had been an accidental discharge the week before that hadn't led to sufficient scrutiny. So any one of these different, you know, small deviations from perfect practice by themselves would not have allowed this to happen. But when they all sort of came together, um, suddenly there you had Alex Baldwin with a loaded weapon that should not have been loaded and, and firing it and having this tragic outcome happen. I mean, failure happens all the time, and it often makes the news. I, I wonder if the um, the tendency within media to try and find a culprit m may actually be unproductive. For some reason, I've got this sinkhole in Auckland in my head at the moment. The um, 
the pipes carrying the sewage have collapsed. There's a massive hole in quite a wealthy suburb, and there's 13 million litres of wastewater spilling out into our ocean every day, and it seems to be mm. taking a long time to get fixed. Right, so right. so it's tempting to say, hey, well, the people who run the, run the pipes. It's their fault, or the, or the mayor. It's his fault, or the uh, the ratepayers who you know have resisted rate rises. It's their fault. You point out that actually that culprit seeking reduces the chance of learning anything. Exactly. I mean, it reduces it because then it, people clam up. They don't want to share honestly and openly their part of it. And for any complex failure, you know, there really are multiple contributing factors. And the only way we can prevent them going forward is when we freely share our perspective on the elephant, right? I saw this and you saw that. And when it all comes together, we get a fuller picture. So the finger pointing makes that nearly impossible. And it also lets us off the hook, right? We think, okay, we found the culprit. We're done. Move on. When in fact, we have not at all decrease the chances of this happening again, right? We've, we've let ourselves off the hook rather than done the fuller analysis that actually would, would help us prevent it going forward. You're talking about psychological safety there and um, the, you know, the confidence to, and the safety to be able to talk honestly about how things went wrong. And isn't it funny that I thought of that, of your PhD again, which was 30 years ago. And I don't think you set out to, um, to look at the team dynamics and, and that sort of thing. But but same thing with those teams you studied in your PhD. They all felt safe to talk about their failures, so they reported them more, and so it looked like they were failing more. Exactly. So, And that's exactly the, the challenge, is that it often the ones that look worse are, in fact, better because they're open. They're sharing what goes, what's going on. You know, and in families and in companies where the message is sent explicitly or implicitly that, you know, only success is what is expected and only perfection is what we want, then that doesn't make people suddenly perfectly successful. What it means is that you don't hear the truth. You don't hear what's really going on. So what is failing well? What does that look like? Failing well means taking risks that are smart risks. It means being willing to go into new territory, whether that's picking up golf in middle age or running an experiment in a scientific laboratory or making a new friend, right? Being willing to go into new unproven territory to give it a try, to learn from it. And oftentimes in all of those examples, it may not work out perfectly. And accepting that that's part of life, a full and adventurous life will have failures going forward. And failing well also means being vigilant and cautious and careful, say, around dangerous machinery or in aviation. In other words, failing well means prevent as many preventable failures as humanly possible and welcome and pursue the intelligent failures to increase your learning and progress and growth. You didn't set out to write a parenting book, although there is quite useful stuff for parents <laughs> in here. In fact, quite literally, we hear from Sarah Blakely, who's the founder of the shapewear brand Spanx. When she was a kid, her father used to say to her and her brother over dinner, how did you fail this week? That's a, um, a really interesting approach, isn't it? Do you approve? I 
I think it's wonderful because first of all, it detoxifies failures, right? I'm sure the questions are asked and answered, you know, with a smile, sort of, of course, if you're growing up and you're doing new things every day as a, as a child, some of them are going to end in failure. So detoxifying it, making it something that we talk about and learn from, and hey, you can learn from each other's failures too, which is a great advantage. Um, and then also instilling that value of persistence, of knowing you're not supposed to be right every time or perfect every time, that anything really worth doing requires effort and and persistence and, and diligent learning to, to really make, make serious progress. I think people might worry about the shame, uh, embarrassments, um, having to bear mm-hmm. the, the moral weights of owning up to failures or embracing failures, but you actually point out it can be quite liberating. It really can. It's not easy, and I don't want to pretend that personally I've completely conquered that fear and that shame. <laughs> But but once you know, I, I I say let's look at it scientifically, right? When we once we fully appreciate, just decide to be okay with the fact that we're fallible human beings, then life starts, right? Because then we know we know we're fallible. All of us are. You're not unique to be fallible. So it it just liberates us to feel okay about our humanness. And to be more graceful and welcoming and, and appreciative of others' humanness. Gee, what great culture this would be for a company to have uh, leadership who said, hey, um, that was a failure, but you tried your best and you were going for something and actually the risks weren't too high. Good for you. Exactly. No, I mean, I think that is the culture in in any innovation department that's that's good right that that does a good job with innovation and and in some you know in some organizations say pixar comes to mind there's just an absolute uh determination to keep that culture alive because otherwise people will not be willing to take to take risks to try new things that won't all work out as as hoped and and then also to support each other like to create that culture that you just described where um I'm happy to tell you this thing I tried that didn't work because I don't want you to have to try it too. It might help to think of your workplace as a laboratory, right? We're going to run a little experiment today. Yes. I like to say think like a scientist. You know, scientists are willing to experiment because that's their job. And the rest of us ought to be willing too. And then we ought to share the learnings from those experiments to, to help each other out. Harder to learn from success, right? And people like to... Um, to, uh, what is the word, revise the narrative on success. Hey, uh, yes. we succeeded, here's what we did yes. right. But how would you know? How would you know if you hadn't tried the other way? Oh, yeah, if you think about it, any successful outcome could be due to hard work. It could be luck. It could be, you know, it was the right strategy. It could be all of the above or none of the above. It's hard to know. But failures are usually a little bit more diagnostic. When we when we do the hard work of learning from failure, we say, ah, now we understand it better. Now we have now we can revise our, our recipe. Yeah, we were talking about that utopian workplace. Actually there are some places that are consciously and proactively embracing failure, having things like failure Fridays and, and failure parties. Do you like the idea of those? 
I love the idea of those. And, and for several reasons, one, again, it normalizes the fact that failure will happen in new territory, right? So if it's an advertising company or a, you know, um, a scientific lab or an innovation department, it just makes it clear, discussable, full of humor that failures will happen. Two, it encourages people to report and, you know, close out their failing projects or initiatives earlier rather than later, because there's this sort of wonderful little celebratory moment. And so you're just more willing to pause and pivot and stop throwing good money after bad. And and three, when you have a party or a ritual, people hear about it, and then you don't suffer the waste of the same failure a second time. That's great stuff. Um, thank you for your time today. I've been talking to Harvard Business School professor Amy Edmondson, and her new book is called Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. Amy, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me.